Good morning. As we're going through the life and ministry on earth of Jesus, the last several weeks we've taken a look at while Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. Jesus has now left Jerusalem. Uh, there's some things that have happened that we're not going to cover because my uh, sermon topics, if you will, has been the life and earthly ministry of Jesus. What's happening in between Jesus leaving Jerusalem and now is that he sent out 70 of his disciples two by two to go minister to the various towns and villages that he was going to be coming to. Which is always surprising because when you see movies or other things or you get this idea of Jesus' ministry, it always seems to be that it's just the 12 that follow him around. And we kind of forget oftentimes the women who also uh, were a part of his ministry. But he had gathered a number of people who were following him, and he sent them on a ministry. And they had great success, and they were excited about it and had returned back to Jesus to discuss the results of their ministry. And Jesus was happy for them and was encouraging them. And in that context, a, a lawyer comes to him, and Jesus and this lawyers have a conversation. Now, in full disclosure, I am a lawyer. I was a lawyer first and then became a pastor. Uh, people who knew me as a lawyer and then discovered that I'm a pastor kind of look at me funny. And people who know that I'm a pastor then discover that I'm a lawyer kind of look at me funny. And when they look at me funny, I have the same comment. I have two strikes and one more I'm out. And most people can never understand how a pastor and a lawyer can intertwine. And one of my uh, explanations is, is that a lawyer should be concerned about the law. And uh, as I was given advice in, in law school, when the facts are on your side, you pound on the facts. When the law is on your side, you pound on the law. And when neither the facts or the law are on your side, you pound on the table. And so as a lawyer, I think that the most effective way to communicate God's word is to communicate God's word because that's what's much more influential than my opinion. But because I'm a lawyer, I've been subject to hearing numerous lawyer jokes, most of which I can't repeat because of the foul language. And uh, I was a, a president of a business group for a year, and one of the things that I did different from uh, the other presidents before me or after is I started out each and every meeting with a lawyer joke, which means basically we had 50 meetings, so I had to come up with 50 lawyer jokes. And so I'm going to give you a lawyer joke just because that's what we lawyers do sometimes just to, to be self-deprecating. And so I've chosen this one because there were a number I could spend the entire worship time just giving lawyer jokes. But there was this lawyer who had been given a diagnosis that he had a terminal illness. And he had always heard but did not believe that you can't take it with you. So after having this diagnosis of a uh, terminal illness, he went to the, his bank accounts and emptied out all the money from the accounts and placed them into two pillowcases, and he placed them in his attic just above his bed. 
And after several months, the, the disease took its course, and the, the lawyer died. A month or so after the uh, funeral, his wife, wanting to put some things up, went up to the attic to put some things away and saw the two pillowcases still stuffed with money. She goes, that fool. I told him he should have put it in the basement. And that's where most people think lawyers are going is, is not up but down. So, um, uh, that, so here's this lawyer uh, that, that comes to Jesus. And unfortunately, in their time, just as ours, uh, oftentimes lawyers don't have that great of public opinion by the public. And so in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, it says this, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now right off we see that this lawyer is going to be in an adversarial relationship. He's testing Jesus. He's, he's, he's not asking the question because he wants truly to find out the information which is unfortunate because the question that the lawyer asks is actually one that everyone should ask. And so this lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Excellent question. One that we all, I think, should and probably do ask. How is it that I, that I receive this eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus, what is it written in the law? How does it read to you? Or how is your interpretation of the law? Now, Jesus' response isn't to give him an answer. Jesus' response is kind of to treat him like a lawyer. Because we lawyers learned how we be lawyers by the Socratic method. Is you ask, the professor would ask a question, and you would answer it. You ask other questions. And so you learn by questioning. So Jesus turns the tactic on this lawyer and says, well, how are you interpreting the law? What does it read to you? And he being the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So even as Jesus has said previously that the whole law is found on these two points, to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. And so the lawyer is answering correctly. He's got the point. And so Jesus, in verse 28, says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. So the information is accurate. The interpretation is accurate. The theology is accurate. So you're correct. But Jesus knows the difference between theology and action. Sometimes we claim to believe things that we don't live in accordance with. People will say, well, I know God is in control, but they're always trying to wrestle control out of God. Or only God give God control when they no longer can do anything. Or we'll say that I believe that God's grace is sufficient for me until we continue to try to earn his love. And so Jesus has pointed to the fact that, yes, the theology is correct. You're to love the Lord your God, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you're correct. He says, do this, and you will live. He didn't say, just believe this, and you will live. He said, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer understood exactly what Jesus was getting at. 
Because if his theology was correct and he was living in accordance with it, he had to go, excellent, Jesus, you and I agree. I can live in comfort and in confidence that I have eternal life. But the lawyer wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole. Who is my neighbor? Is it the person who lives next door to me? Is it the person who lives on my block? Is it the same? Is it the people who live in, in my general area, my housing tract? Is it my city? He wants to know what the loopholes are. Who is my neighbor? And the reason I believe that this lawyer has asked that, because he knows, as well as Jesus knows, he only loves those he wants to love, and he wants to reduce who his neighbor is. So Jesus is going to give him an example. So verse 30 says this, And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by a chance a priest was going down on the road, and we saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put, them, put him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. So Jesus gives this example, and it's, a, it's, an, it's a, an example that is going to pretty much shock Jewish believers because their attitude is as the Samaritan is someone you look down on, someone you don't associate with because they have an ethnic differences and they have a religious difference and, and Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans, so much so that they wouldn't even enter the Samaritan territory, that they would take the long way around to get to Jerusalem or the long way around to get back from Jerusalem because they did not want to even associate with Samaritans. And so Jesus said there was a priest who came by, and he saw him. Now the priest may have had some kind of example of, of exemption because you can't touch a dead person, and it may render you unclean, and he can't do service. But it, certainly the priest could have done something. Number one, check to see if the man was dead, only half dead. He could have rendered some kind of aid by calling others. But instead, he, got, he went to the other side and passed by. A Levite, who similarly didn't have some of the same functions as the priest did, but still had religious obligations to, to do things in the temple and those types of things. And so they are those who were connected with God and in service to God. But this person also went on the other side. It was only the Samaritan who stopped, bandaged him, placed medicine and anti 
products, if you will. They poured wine to stop any kind of infection. And, those, and he bandaged him, and he placed him on his beast so that he didn't have to walk. He took time out of his trip. It says that he stayed at the inn and cared for the man another day. Then he took two denarii. Each denarii is worth a day's wages. And he expended that for the care of the man and said, that's not the limit of my care for this gentleman. If the innkeeper spends more money in his care, then I will repay you when I return. So not only did the Samaritan, who the Jews would look on at contempt, stop, rendered aid, took the man from his situation where he could have died, brought him to safety, continued to nurse him, and then saw to it as others would. So then Jesus, after telling this story, looks at the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Notice he didn't even say the Samaritan. His answer is the one who showed mercy, which is correct. But he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. The lawyer wanted to know who's your neighbor. And Jesus tells him, the person who has need. That person is your neighbor. That person you need to show mercy because God seeing your need showed mercy on you. So when you see others in need, they are your neighbor. Now I know in, in today's world, this is hard because sometimes we don't know in essence who's our neighbor and who's in need. We'll see people with signs as we exit the freeway asking for help. And we don't know whether we should. Is it a scam? Because you'll hear stories about how a person will stay for a period of time and then walk away from the exit and get in their Mercedes and drive away. And then you'll have others who will come and seek your help. So I have a Joe Davis answer for you. I think it's consistent with the scriptures. And that is, follow your conscience. If your conscience tells you to help, then help. If your conscience tells you don't, then don't. But I believe, as Paul has said, we need to follow the dictates of our conscience. And the point is, is that if you violate your conscience, Oftentimes, that conscience grows dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. It is better for you have to have been, been taken advantage of because then God will judge that person than for you to ignore a person in need who is your neighbor and not. Now, a lot of times we'll say, and rightfully so, we entertain angels unaware. Certainly Abraham did. And there are times that I believe in our church experience that we've had angels 
come and do things for us. And when we went to thank them, they disappeared and nobody ever heard about them. So I believe that there are angels unaware. However, whether they're angels or people, if they're in need, they're our neighbor. But this lawyer put Jesus to the test and failed the second part of the test because he wanted to limit who his neighbor is, was. So he failed that part of the test. But I tell you, he also failed the first part of the test. The test which says, to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, all that you are. That is the first commandment, and we are told. And the lawyer was thinking he satisfied that because he didn't say, well, how do I love God? He said, who's my neighbor? Thinking I'm safe on the first part. But I tell you, he failed. How is it I know he failed? Because in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says this, We love because he first loved us. We love God, not because on our own initiative we decided to love God. We love God in response to his love towards us. We see the sacrifice that Jesus made, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing the cross, all of that for his love for us. And in response to that love, we love God in return. But he says this in verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now that's pretty bold. He didn't say, if you love God but hate your neighbor, you're mistaken. He says, you're lying. You're lying to those who say that you love God and you're lying to yourself. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. God needs nothing from you. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't even need your love. His love is given to you, not in response to your love, but he loves you anyway. The way you demonstrate your love for God is that you love his people. Now, we tend to think hate is wrong. Well, I don't hate people. I don't seek their ill will. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. The scriptural view of hate is to see somebody in need and doing nothing. It doesn't mean that you want somebody's ill will. It means you do nothing for them. So to give you an example, the scripture says that the Lord loved Jacob and hated Esau. Didn't mean he had ill will towards Esau. It means that he wasn't going to benefit Esau the way he did Jacob. He loved Jacob, Esau he hated. So in the scriptural view is, is that when you hate your brother, you see a need and do nothing. So this lawyer failed the first test. He thought he loved God, but because he was so looking to narrow the interpretation of who his neighbor was, he did not truly love God. 
Jesus calls us, as he called this lawyer, to action. He says, how is it that you gain eternal life after having believed in me, after acknowledging that I am the door to the sheep and that you hear my voice and you come? He says that we are to demonstrate our love. We demonstrate our love for the Lord, not only by the internal loving him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, all those things that are within us, but we show our love for God by how we treat his people. The awesome thing is I'm sure you can think and probably are thinking of times when you had the opportunity to help somebody and you were unsure and you didn't. And you may even feel guilty about that. We have a love, love, a loving God forgives us and tells us to repent, to turn from one direction to another. It doesn't even necessarily be a 90 degree or 180 degree change. It may simply be a few degrees. You may say, I'm not loving the Lord my God the way I ought to because I have limited how I love his people. And so, God, thank you that you've given me a course correction. That I understand now to love you is more than a feeling. It's more than worship and singing songs. It's more than attending church or listening to it through some social media. But it's loving his people by taking action for the needs of his people. Now that means discernment. Or you see, I've been in church long enough to know that there are people who are in true need. And there are also in people who just want to use you. There was a, a woman many years ago in our congregation, and I don't have to worry about telling you who she is because you will never know unless you were there 30-plus years ago. But she would constantly seek help from the leaders of our church, our deacons and others. And our deacons took their ministry seriously and tried to help this woman, and they would take her to doctor's appointments and do various things, even when it cost them. But they started to notice that she was taking advantage of them. She wasn't in need. She was, give me, give me, give me. So when one of the deacons said, I can't do it this day, she turned on him and spread all kinds of rumors about him, hurt him deeply. You see, her act was also not an act of love. It was, my needs are more important than your needs. And so she wasn't loving her neighbor who was taking care of her. And so as Jesus has told his disciples, we need to be as innocent as doves, as wise as serpents. There is great need 
So much so that sometimes we wonder, how is it that we can accomplish the need? For instance, someone loses their job. We may not have the money individually to help them get through that time. And we can feel terrible. But you notice the good Samaritan had the means. It's an act of love when you do something that someone's in need when you have the ability to satisfy that need. You don't have the ability to satisfy that need. Then I suggest two courses of action. Course number one, which is always good, pray. Because God already knows, but he will give you wisdom how to pursue and proceed next. The second, ask somebody to help you. Maybe somebody in, that you know in the, your congregation or your friends or relatives can give this person a job. And that will fulfill the need. Yeah, you don't have enough money to pay his rent, but you might be able to find a mechanism for him to pay his rent. And so instead of walking by the, on the other side of the road because we can't fulfill that need, sometimes all we can do is go up, put some wine on the wounds, put some oil and bandage them, and say, I'll sit here with you until we figure this out. That's love. It's not ignoring the problem. Part of the reason why God has called us to be a church, to be a group of called out ones, is that in the strength of many, there's greater strength. When there's few, there's little strength. There is, I believe, an African uh, wisdom that says, you want to run fast, run alone. You want to run far, run together. The church is that which enables us to run further than we could, to assist. And when someone, using the running analogy, when someone becomes lame, we can help them carry them until the, the, the injury is resolved. We can support one another, carry each other's burdens, because he has called us to love him. And to love him, we truly do that by loving each other. And all God's people said,